Hey, it's Shane here. Throughout the majority of my career, I spent thousands of hours on my technique to try to be as close to perfect as I could be. But the one thing I didn't work on was my mental skills. On the exact mindset I needed every ball to be able to access all of my technical skills that I worked so hard to develop. Well, I've recently released my book, Winning the Inner Battle, which has all of the information that you will ever need to deeply understand how you can create the correct mindset for you so that you can bring the best version of yourself every time you step out into the middle. Go to shamewatson.au to purchase a copy of Winning the Inner Battle now. It is available in paperback, ebook, or audiobook versions. Well, it's now time for your episode of Lessons Learned with the Greats. Enjoy. I was a bit soft on occasions, I believe, um, throughout my early career and so forth. It wasn't until that time that, you know, around that um, 89 period where I really got my act together, I, you know, it took me sort of four years to, to get, get myself on a balanced playing field in my head and, and back my ability and that ability was then backed by my fitness and, and everything else and from from that 80, 89, 90 summer in Australia through to the end of my career, I had my, my act was in the gear all the time. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Lessons Learned with the Greats. I'm Shane Watson, and today we are joined by one cricketer that gave me hope that maybe one day I could play cricket for Australia. Every step of the way as a young kid growing up in Ipswich in Queensland, I imagine that my steps were the exact same steps that must have been taken by one of Australia's greatest ever fast bowlers. Craig McDermott, welcome to my show. Thanks, thanks. <laughs> Billy, as in Billy the Kid, um, as he is known, uh, grew up in my hometown of Ipswich and gave me so much inspiration that dreams maybe can come true. I played the same Ipswich representative teams as Billy, as well as going to the same high school Ippy Grammar School. So this all gave me hope that maybe I could achieve my dream of playing cricket for Australia too. Billy has lived an extraordinary life so far on and off the cricket field. He made his test debut at just 19 and went on to play 71 test matches, taking 291 wickets to go along with his 203 one-day international wickets from 138 games. Billy was instrumental in the first World Cup title for the Aussies, taking 18 wickets to help spearhead that historic win. Billy, you've achieved so much and have had so many special memories on the field, um, but is there one highlight that really stands out to you as you look back over your career? Yeah, I think there's probably two from my perspective would be the, that World Cup win in 1987 as a 21-year-old, um, taking 18 wickets, which at that time was a world record for most wickets <laughs> in a World Cup. And then obviously, um, you know, the other two would have been my International Cricketer of the Year awards in 91, 92 in Australia and 94, 5. So they're probably three, I suppose. But the World Cup probably takes precedence over all that because of mm. my age more than anything else, only being a 21-year-old um, taking on the world, which was great. We, we had a great side and we played good cricket and came home with the trophy. It's amazing to think that you could do that, um, dominate at a World Cup, a world record at that time for adding wickets as a 21-year-old. Did you have that much handle of your game at that time, like in that much control of your game? Because that's an incredible achievement at such a young age. Yeah, I think I did, Watto. I mean, um, we trained very hard in that in, leading into that World Cup and uh, I, I remember the, the winter, we had winters off in those days. We didn't play 12 months of the year like you guys do, but... 
Um, so we had I had a good sort of three or four month preparation. So I spent trying to get used to the humidity. We were lucky that we actually toured India the year before on an Ashes. Oh, sorry, on a on a Test series, which we had the second ever tied Test match uh, in Madras. So mm. we were well versed for the conditions from that point of view, where a lot of the other teams like England and New Zealand were shooting themselves about getting sick and taking doctors with them and everything else. And, you know, we, we'd already been through all that, so we were pretty relaxed. And we trained very hard under Bob Simpson and, you know, it was really just being able to execute. And I, I spent a lot of time on, you know, executing Yorkers, my slow balls, all those type of things, which everyone does these days. But at the age of 21, I, I was... You know, I was right on the money, and I was as fit as a fiddle. So um, that's what you needed to be when you when you tour India, as you know. Yeah, it's incredible to think that a twenty one year old can 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 do that. It's yeah, it's, it's incredible. Um, I'm going to move into cricket specific lessons learned um, now. So, from a bowling point of view, was there one specific technical component that really stands out to you that you worked on and developed? So, from that moment on, you're like, yeah, if I do this every time, every ball that I bowl. I'm going to be close to my best every time. Um, I, I probably had a couple of things. I, I spent a, a, a number of years working working through my run up, which um, mm. I was always a good runner and a good athlete, um, even back at school in athletic teams and whatever else. But you know, just getting my nice smooth run up with my, my hand actions being and my arm actions being correct for my load up, and then mm. this, the other thing that um, was passed on to me um, after we'd been flogged by New Zealand at the Gabba. Um, we had naughty boy nets in the middle one day with Simo after we'd been flogged in three days and Hadley had got 13 wickets for nothing. And um, yeah. so we're having centre wicket practice and uh, I was having a bit of trouble swinging the ball consistently and so forth. And Ray Lindell came down out of the cricketers club after having half a dozen pots, no doubt, with Ray and, um, and came out in his three-piece suit and he said, I just want to you show me the grip on the ball, son. And I said, uh, this is my grip. And he said, you just need to put your fingers on the paint, son, not on the seam, on the paint. And that changed my well, that changed my way in which I obviously gripped the ball and I became more consistent with not only the way I swung the ball, but also it helped me be more consistent with my length. So I think that was probably the, the single most technical component that changed my bowling early doors in my career. So when you talk about on the paint, did you adjust the seam position in your hand, was it? Or just no. how you, like the, the width of your fingers? Just the width of my fingers on just outside those outside stitches and yeah. the, seam, the seam position or I changed my wrist position to be able to come down behind the ball. So mm. um, even, as a, even as a coach, um, you know, lecturing young fast bowlers in clinics or whatever it might be, I'm always carrying a ball and I've always got it tilted to the left, um, mm. just how I carry the ball when I, when, I, when I bowled or when I ran in. So, And that's what I preach to all my young kids that I coach now and you know a few of the, the better bowlers that are playing for Australia now as well. So, um, you know, it's just one of those things that, that, that I've found very helpful for me. Yeah, what you say there about the seam angle, that people have got to realise how important that is. If you do want to swing the ball a certain way or swing the ball away, whether you're right-hander or left-hander, you do need the seam position angled towards, like, well, gully, around about that to be able to get the ball to swing away. So, because um, I used to, initially when I started, I had a very straight seam position. My fingers were straight down the seam and my the seam position was dead straight. And surprise, surprise, I didn't swing the ball, actually angled it in. Um, but it wasn't until I, I tilted this actual seam position, so I was more facing towards gully and then worked on getting my wrist down behind the ball 
So the seam was sort of coming out with that angle that then Ozar would actually start swinging the ball. So what you said there is, yeah, it's gold dust. Amazing that just something as simple as that had such a huge impact on on your ability to be at your best. Yeah, it was the same with Mitchell Stark coming into the World Cup in 2015, working hard at that particular stage. So he could actually, you know, he worked on tilting the seam and all sorts of things, but it was really getting him to understand from his brain to his wrist where that wrist needed to be to be behind the ball. Mm-hmm. And, you know, he improved out of sight over that sort of six-month period and went on, you know, to, to brain it after that. But, you know, each mm-hmm. bowler is different, as, as you know, and the way in which their arm path comes over, their wrist or their hand goes down behind the ball, um, all those type things. I mean, Ryan Harris used to have a quite angled seam in his hand, uh, in his mm-hmm. fingers. Um, Peter Siddle went from having a very angled seam and a wide grip, which was virtually couldn't bowl an answering if you tried with that sort of grip, and particularly mm-hmm. bowling over the perpendicular like he did. We changed mm-hmm. that around to having a straight seam, and you know, in South Africa in 2011, he started swinging the ball for the first time for a long mm-hmm. time, so, and improved uh, markedly after that. Yeah, absolutely. And the one thing also that you, t- that you mentioned was your run-up and how important the actual run-up momentum, understanding what type of bowler you are as well to whether you need a lot of run-up momentum or whether you just need to be balanced at the crease um, because you're powerful at the crease. So people need to really understand how integral getting your run-up right, you know, fit fit for you as well. Um, because, yeah, as you said, you were an incredible runner as well. It was just making sure it was the right run-up for you to be able to be at the right position at the crease. Yeah, I think that uh, I went through a couple of different phases. Bob Simpson tried to uh, to shorten my run-up. My run-up was uh, 16 paces, then another 13 paces. So it ended up basically on the circle. And, mm. uh, you know, I used that first 13 paces to gain momentum to hit my mark with my right foot and attack the crease, you know, pretty vigorously. So, um, you know, that was important to me. Simo tried to shorten it. I shortened my run-up down to 22 paces full stop and have a, mm. a static start just like you did. Um, I, I lost pace. I couldn't bowl fast. I, I needed that momentum in my run-up to be able to get through the crease and get over your front freak, front leg, lock it out, and, and, and bowl quick. So everyone's different. Um, mm. And, uh, you know, I spent a fair bit of time making sure that was right. And I, I didn't change my run-up from, you know, just after that World Cup I, I tried to trim it down to 22 paces for about three months and then thought, no, bugger this, like it, doesn't, it just doesn't work for me. I lost mm. two yards in pace and I just went back to the way it used to be. Yeah, exactly. And that's what, what you said there. Like everyone's got to realise what type of bowler they are. Um, to be able to bowl fast, you need – most of the time you need momentum. So you run up momentum at the crease. Yeah. Um, some people have got super quick, um, you know, fast switch fibers where they can bowl super fast off a couple of steps. So they might not need as much momentum uh, running in with them um, through their run up. But yeah. majority of people, even even um, you know Brett Lee Binger, he bowled fast. Yes, he could bowl fast off a few steps, but still without that momentum that he had, he couldn't push you know push the limit that he did, like pushing one fifty sixties all the time. Same with Mitch Johnson. So yeah. just working out what works for you, and then. And then pushing the limit to it. Yeah, pretty much. I mean, you look at someone like Wazzy Macram off 13 steps to bowl 145 and swing mm. both ways. So yeah. everyone's different. Then you've got Wacko Eunice who ran in like a steam train and, and Shire Bacta <laughs> and so forth. So um, everyone yeah. is totally different uh, to the way in which they approach, you know, like, like you just mentioned, Mitchell Johnson, you, know, you can bowl fast off 10 steps because it's just all mm. shoulder. Um, mm. You know, where other people rely on their rhythm and, and so forth to get – 
speed through the crease and get over that front leg to, to, to um, lock it out to, to increase that speed that they need. You were a very, very much a lateral thinker when it came to pushing the limits of your skills. Like an example of this is you working with David Nilsson, uh, one of Australia's best baseballers, to develop a great slow ball. What did what did you discover by working with him? We both had the same manager, so that's how I met David um, Nielsen. And okay. uh, so he was in Melbourne for some uh, baseball stuff and we just got together and uh, he, came, he said, I'll come to the Nets and he said, I'll take a few balls off you from behind the stumps and I thought he was taking the piss because he stood behind the stumps with a with a catcher's mitt inside the nets. So he was back probably oh. one, one metre behind the stumps and uh, I was bowling flat out off my long run and he was taking me like I was bowling off spin. So, really? Yeah, he was catching, obviously, a catcher for the Milwaukee Brewers, so he knew what he was doing. But yeah. <laughs> um, it was a couple of days before the Sri Lanka-Australia one-day finals at Melbourne and he just said we should try this slow ball. It's a bit like a knuckle ball, but um, but you'll have to the pitchers throw it at the uh, batter's hip or thigh, mm. and it'll drop at the last moment. So um, I got my head around that over the next two days of training. He came to training for those couple of days just to see how things were going, and I picked up two wickets in literally no time flat in that mm. one day final where. Mm. I thought I bowled a full toss that should have gone into Bay 13 and it just wobbled and dropped. And I can't remember who I got out of LBW, but it was an absolute cracker. So I, yeah. I bowled continually from then on. And I think Glenn McGrath sort of took, took, a, took a liking to it as well. And there's been a few other people bowled as well since then. Yeah. So it's more a split finger ball, right? Yeah. It's a split finger ball and you, and you hold the seam. The seam goes um, horizontal, not vertical, uh, like it normally yeah. does. Your fingers are yeah. on the side either side of the ball and yeah it just come, comes out like that it was a it was a good find at that time and yeah a few laughs well it's great that you were able to um yeah cross across different sports to be able to find something that hadn't hadn't been done before so that's a massive a competitive advantage for you against all these poor batsmen who hadn't seen that before yeah well i mean it's, it's like everything i mean once you do something everyone's watching out for it aren't they so you got to find ways mm-hmm. of like you know when you're bowling reverse you got to try and hold them the ball differently or cover the ball up so you don't know which way it's going. But, you know, it's mm. um, like anything that if you're delivering it, I'm, I'm not sure what speed I bowl, but if you bowl reasonably quick, um, you know, the ball would behave differently every time. So it's the batsman's still going to make, make a decision, don't they? Uh, across all cricket, you played 174 first-class matches, taking 677 wickets as a front-line fast bowler. So what were the lessons that you learnt throughout your body to manage your body as well as you could to continue to bowl as fast as you did throughout your entire career? Well, to be to be as fit as you possibly could, I, uh, um, I, I just did a lot of running and I did a lot of gym work. Probably from after that, after the 87 World Cup, which is I was, I was very fit for those first few years. And when I got the world record, I thought I'd rest on my laurels a bit and I became a fat prick. So um, for a summer and... Um, by the by, the end of uh, the 88-89 summer in Australia, I was twelfth man for Queensland. So I'd gone from being a world right. champion to being twelfth man for Queensland, which was a, a hell of a wake up call for me. I, I saw uh, Rudy Webster who was a psychologist um, and and had a few he had a few thoughts around the way in which I was approaching things. I went away and uh, was that in in eighty nine in I think it was about April. 
just after I'd been 12th man, I went to a, a dinner at the Broncos and that's where I met Trevor Hendy. So um, mm. I went and trained with him for a couple of weeks and he not only changed my way in which I went physically about it but also what I, how I thought about preparing mentally as well. So setting myself some pretty pretty huge goals during that next next winter. I wasn't picked in the Ashes uh, Tour of England in 89. So by the time the boys got back from England, I was a different shape. I was a different athlete. I was a different person mentally. And uh, my whole career changed from there. And, you know, just I had, I think I had about 35, 40 wickets before Christmas uh, in, in 89, 90, leading into, or 90, 91, I can't remember now, leading into uh, a series that we're in, we're in Australia and I got picked for the last two tests. But all those type things really just got down to me being fit. Um, I always set myself a goal that, you know, AB would have to come and tell me that he was going to rest me rather than me saying I'm a bit tired or whatever. And, you know, I really set myself a goal that first spell of mine. Wanted, I wanted to be sort of seven, eight, nine overs if I could be and then have a spell for 20 minutes before lunch or half an hour before lunch and then be ready to go again after lunch. So that was that was the way in which I sort of approached my bowling from that time on. Yeah, so um, Trevor Hendy's is one of Australia's greatest ironmen. Obviously, he was in, incredibly fit. Do the things that he um, that he worked with you on, were they cricket-specific or more just a general fitness um, fitness, fitness bank that you, that you were building? Yeah, look, one of the things he said to me, um, you know, like we did – I did some swimming with Dennis Cottrell and there was all – that was a – I was a reasonable swimmer at school, but um, got out of it because I had science and I hated it. I hated watching the white line on the bottom of the pool, (laughs) um, the red, the black line, I should say. But um, along those lines, it was really just about he wanted me to swim 50 metres underwater or 50 metres freestyle without taking a breath. And that mm. would mean that my lung capacity had been and had improved, and and obviously my running fitness was going to be a lot better because of that capacity and all that sort of stuff. So it was quite ironic. I was up at oh, the Hyatt Coolum, and we were at a, a, a Queensland uh, camp at the time, and I I did do that fifty metres underwater, and I actually rang Trevor up and I said, "I'm ready to play for Australia again," and. Uh, it just went from there. It was quite ironic, and and my fitness was just off the charts. You know, you know your yo-yos and all that sort of stuff. I, I blitzed all that sort of stuff, which a lot of guys mm. do. But back in those days, there wasn't a lot of people who approached their fitness the way in which I did. I don't think. I mean, Ian Healy certainly did from a keeping perspective, but there wasn't a lot of bowlers that worked as hard as I did off the field with fitness and, and weights. Yep. So it was more like longer distance. Um, running, or was it like a, a combination of longer distance, like shorter sprints, uh, a bit more cricket, speci- uh, like fast bowling specific? No, I did most of my stuff. I did um, my pre seasons in those times were uh, a 12K run on a Monday morning, followed by leg weights, 5K or 4K run in the afternoon, followed by upper body, and I'd do that six days a week. Um, but I only did five the twelve k run one on the on the Monday morning. The rest were all five k runs. So I did a lot of running. Then we got when we got into pre season. Obviously, there was a lot of you know one hundreds, two hundreds, four hundreds, eight hundreds, up the clock, down the clock, all those type things. So a few grandstand runs and whatever else. But um, another guy who really instilled a lot of good things in me from a fitness perspective was John Maguire, who had played a few games for Australia mm. on a West Indies tour. Moose was as fit as a fiddle, so um, 
we did a lot of running together and all that sort of stuff, and that helped me as a young guy as well. Again, his attitude was second to none against uh, for being as fit as you possibly could, so you could bowl as many many overs as you could. And you know, he'd always say to me, "Well, you know, Billy, you've got to bowl as many overs as you can. You can't get you can't get wicket stand at fine leg clapping somebody else bowling. You know, you need the ball in your hand." So. He was a good, he was a good influence on my career as well. And from a, a bowling perspective, did you used to bowl a lot of balls at training and that in the lead up to, in the lead up to games as well for for your like bowling fitness? Uh, yeah, I did. Um, I'd bowl even the day before a test match. I'd bowl for at least an hour. Um, I just <laughs> felt that I had to had to do that, um, and that was something that when I became a coach. Uh, it took me a long time to get my head around fast bowlers not having a bowl the day before a test match. So um, mm. those type of things, and that's just the way in which the game's evolved and it works and everybody gets to do their own way. I, when John Buchanan became coach of Queensland, they started in introducing a lot shorter warm-ups, different type stretching and all that sort of stuff. I was a runner lap, but you've foot up on the fence, do a hamstring stretch, all <laughs> boring yeah. shit. And, um, but that's just the way I was brought up and that was the way I always wanted to prepare for a test match as I did until the day I retired. So I, I couldn't get my head around. I, I just couldn't get warm enough and loose yeah. enough to get cracking the way in which they wanted to do it. I was set in my ways. Yeah, it's interesting to say that because it was a macro on um, one of the episodes we've had on Lessons Learned with the Greats talks about um, – he used to bowl a day before the test match as well. The, the day before, he only felt comfortable if he was able to bowl like at least an hour or so before before the test. And yeah. then he used to say that even in first-class cricket, if they were um, batted first, if his team's batted first and one of the openers got out early, he'd go and bowl for an hour in the nets. Yeah. Um, and that's the one thing. And then also he talked about running. He's just ru- he'd, get, he'd run, long-distance running especially, just getting yeah. load into his legs. And yeah. um, it's amazing how things have changed – so much in a way have changed so much because that seemed to work pretty well for you guys. But now things have shifted away in a huge way that now a lot of the time the bowlers aren't bowling fit in regard to getting a lot of load into their, into their bodies. Um, But also from a, from a fitness point of view, yeah, things can, aren't, aren't really as cricket specific as even the fast bowling, just getting load in their legs. Yeah, I thought miles in your legs is what we used to say. So it was very important and, you know, it was a Dennis Lilly trade as well, all that sort of mm. stuff. But, um, you know, if you talk to Courtney Walsh, he was scared to stop bowling. Um, yeah. You know, he didn't want to stop bowling. I don't know how many seasons he played straight between West Indies and England for Gloucestershire and so forth. But he'd openly say to me, Billy, I don't want to, I can't, I don't want to stop bowling because I'm scared I won't be able to get going again. So... And he just bowled and bowled. He, he got bowling fit through bowling all the time, um, 12 months at a time, year in, year out. So, But I just felt that, you know, as a fast bowler, you're a, you're a long jumper, sprinter type athlete and you've got to get bowled in your legs to, 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 to cop the pounding on that, um, you know, some, some, you know, it's like concrete wickets all the time. And I even – you see when I was even – when I was a coach, you know, you guys are talking about they've got sore legs or stiff legs or whatever. That those couple of years that I really went hard at it after I met Trevor Handy, you know, mm-hmm. I'd finish an over, I'd finish a shield day or a test day, uh, twenty-two overs, twenty-four overs, sometimes twenty-five, and you wouldn't be stiff, you wouldn't be sore because 
I did a lot of flexibility work and I did a lot of um, a lot of running and I just I never got sore. Is that right? So you combined your fitness stuff, your running and your strength work with flexibility, with stretching as well? Yeah, 100%. I, I mean, by the end of my sort of last couple of years of my career, I just, you know, finally I got myself almost, or well, got myself into the splits position. So I spent a lot of time in, wow. in doing flexibility and all that sort of stuff, sit and reach, test 20 centimetres past your toes, mm. you know, that type of thing. So flexibility is important um, for a fast bowler. Um, Tomo was very flexible. Uh, Michael Whitney was very flexible. Those two guys could put their head on the ground between their legs are off the charts. But, you know, mm. I felt it. But then you go to the opposite end of the scales. Warnie could flat out, flat out touch in his toes. And one of the best bottles yeah, that's he, ever played the game. But he, so, wasn't, he wasn't running in off like 30, 30 metres off the circle. Yeah, no, no, no. <laughs> he was jumping off his toasties. So. Yeah. <laughs> but um, it's interesting to say that because the one thing that I found – I wish that I started yoga when I was really young in my early, like in my teens and early twenties, because yep. there's one philosophy around, which is crazy when you think of it was, oh, you don't get too flexible because then your joints and everything becomes a bit too mobile, which in the end, that just goes against everything that you think about as a young kid. Like as a young kid, you, you don't hurt yourself. You don't get a calf injury or a hamstring injury as a kid because your muscles and everything is so like malleable and, and flexible, but the older yep. you get, and with, with training in that, the shorter your muscles do get. So the theory around keeping it length, keeping the length there by stretching, it just makes complete sense. So that's one thing we need to actually spend time on as well for longevity of, um, of people and fast bowlers. It's a problem with a lot of the young, young fast bowlers that I coach now and even some of the batters. They, just, they, don't, have, they don't spend any time on warm-ups, flex, flexibility, all that sort of stuff. Mm. and. My young fellow Zach, who's a, a, a bowls as well, and you know his flexibility uh, is, is terrible, and they don't like spending time. It's like a, it's like fifteen minutes wasted in their life while they're trying to play PlayStation. It's a load of rubbish. So yeah. um, we really, we've really got to spend some time on that. It's a really important part of a young fast bowler's, um, you know, setup. Yeah, I completely agree. It's interesting. I, one time when I met Pat Cash. He said, he said to me, because I was talking about yoga and the benefits that I wish I had knew it earlier, and he said that's been – because he still played Masters sort of tennis and that as well. But he said the theory is as you get older, y- your muscles and body and your joints get a bit tighter. So how powerful – exactly everything. Whereas by doing yoga and flexibility – <laughs> yoga and flexibility, you're lengthening things out. So you're trying to stop the, um, yeah, the natural human um, evolution. So, and that's, as you said, like, that's why it I blows me away why it's not um, a prerequisite in cricketers, especially fast bowlers, to be able to make sure that they are as flexible as they possibly can be, tied in with their, you know, their, their bowling technique, getting overs into their body, and also cricket-specific load into their legs. Yeah, I think all of those are 100% important. So, you know, all the young kids that I coach, you know, I've got I do a lot of individual one-on-one coaching with kids from 12 to 15, 16, and you know, I'm, you know, they're talking about always asking me about, oh, you know, how do I get fit? Do I do, you know, shorter sprints? Do I do this? Do I do that? And I said, look, all you have to do is three, four k's a run, three, four k runs a week. Do it as fast as you possibly can. Beat the clock, 
and that's as good as you have to be. And you can mix that up with some sprint work and so forth, and you're going to cope with your representative cricket your, uh, and everything else you do. And, and obviously then you've still got trying to get some balls in your body um, in the nets, bowling plenty of balls as well. And um, that's one thing that I just totally disagree with at the moment with all the workloads for young fast bowlers in 12s, 13s, 14s and 15s. They're trying to get them to play in rep teams, bowling 20 or 30 balls three times a week. It's just an absolute joke. So, yep. um, you know, I'm a young son, Zach, before our, his rep carnival last year, bowled 225 balls a week for, mm. you know, four weeks leading into the carnival. I've got to, they've, got to, they've got to be able to get through some some balls and, and bowl some spells. They, you know, they're limited to bowling three-over spells or four-over spells, and, and that's for a long period of their career. career. And one of the things on the Gold Coast, which is great, as a 14-year-old, you can play seniors cricket and they don't limit the over rate. So, you know, really? Zach, Zach bowled 13 over straight in a, in a second-grade game last year as a 14-year-old. As a so, you know, it's I think it's a great thing. I completely agree. Like, And I'm very passionate about this as well because you think about um, – imagine being telling a batsman that, you know what, you can only hit – you can only develop your skill and you can only hit 100 balls a day. You can only work on and develop your skill 100 balls every day, right? And people are telling fast bowlers, oh, you can only bowl 10 balls today and 20 balls tomorrow. That's a massive like restriction of trade in a way that you are not allowing someone to push the limits of their body, push the limits of their skill development as well. And I see it now still playing club cricket that the young guys coming through, their bowling skill development is not good at all because they haven't had a chance to improve and develop their skills, let alone getting their bodies used to bowling more overs. Whereas the batsmen, because the batsmen, they're not, they haven't got restrictions on them. They can hit as many balls as they want. So that doesn't yeah. seem fair. Yeah, that would have went down with Michael, went down with Michael Hussey, wouldn't it? That would have went real well. So mm. Hunter or anyone, or any, even yourself, you face a thousand balls in the nets as well. So, you know, all those type things, we've, we've got to change that because we, I, I see it with the, the, the kids that I coach and the, and the club cricket I see as well is they can't, we don't have anybody can even bowl a proper Yorker anymore because they can't practice mm. it well enough because we've got physios telling them they can't bowl more than five overs of training, you know, and all this sort of crap. So we, we, our execution has gone out the door. We, Australia, of, Australia itself is, you know, begging to find somebody that can hit the hole regularly for for, for uh, Yorkers and so forth. We just don't have that skill development in our young bowlers. It's, it just it blows me away. It's like saying to a student, you can only study three hours going to this exam because it might not be good for your mental health or you're, you're going to burn your, your – um, you're going to get brain fatigue because you've studied too much. It's absolutely ludicrous. So whoever's listening to this, all these people who have put these bowling restrictions in – and look, I've had stress fractures from bowling, my technique not being great, or um, from me bowling – pushing the limit for the amount of balls that I bowl. But you know what? The only way you see what your breaking point is by bowling up to that point. So that's one That's one point from a body point of view. But then your skill development, how are you supposed to develop your skill if you're told that you can't bowl? Yeah, well, I can't comment on that because I've never had a stress fracture. So, you know, I don't get debated with very often from a physio sports science point of view. But – and I was I was the – I bowl the most balls for a 21-year-old ever in the game in Australia. So – you know, some people are going to break, some people aren't, but that's just part and parcel of all. We need to get ourselves as fit as we possibly can and bowl as many balls as we can so we become as skillful as we can. Wow. 
<laughs> that's how simple and that geez, that's amazing. <laughs> Who thought that that's the recipe? <laughs> well, we might be we might be doing videos and and uh, sports scientist guys that might lose their freaking job, mate. That's the problem. So, oh anyway. wow, well, well, but we make better cricketers. We can we actually develop higher skilled fast bowlers or bowls in general. Jeez. We'll have more money to put into the past players' pension fund then. Yes, please. Yeah, well, that's right. That's uh, exactly what needs to happen. The Trailblazers Pension Fund. Yeah, we need to look after the people who've looked after this this generation, for sure. Um, okay, we'll move on from that. I could talk about that for <laughs> for hours. Um, Billy, I was for- very fortunate to work with you uh, during your time as the Aussie fast bowling coach. Um, so from a coaching perspective, was there a specific time that really stands out to you that didn't turn out how you wanted it, um, that really shaped the way you coached and communicated with the players that you're working with? It was probably more with the captain at one stage than the players, the bowlers. Okay. In um, because we 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 qualified well, we were in the World Cup in 2015, and obviously, as you know, Clarkie was not playing because he had a back sore back and a back injury, and, and we had uh, George Bailey was captain, and and we'd won the first few games and so forth, and Michael came back into the to to uh, to be captain, and we went to Auckland, and we changed mm-hmm. our whole philosophy on who was opening the bowling and who could swing the ball and all those type of things. And that really cost us the game there. And that was that was probably one of the most disappointing days of my coaching career with, for Australia is we didn't, we didn't stick to our plans um, because our, our captain had his own philosophy, which I believed on the day was, was the wrong philosophy. Um, mm. Mitchell Stark almost dug us out of the hole, but he was taken off twice when he should have opened the bowling from the, that particular end where Mitch Johnson bowled from. Mitchell Johnson didn't swing the ball. Mitch will be the first to tell you that he wasn't swinging the ball that summer. Mm. And, um, you know, we, we, we lost that game by, by a pinch. And that was one of the most disappointing days I'd spent as, a, as an Australian coach. And then um, my most pleasing day was Mitchell Stark knocking McCullum stumps out of the ground after a, <laughs> formulating that plan for the previous two or three weeks. So that's sort of – and that all – both those moments happened in that World Cup. So if you had your time again um, and then brought you back to that moment in Auckland, would you have done something differently in the lead-up to that game to try and change that change that outcome? No, I don't think there was anything changing Michael's mind on that particular morning. Okay. So, um, you know, he was very forthright about Mitchell should be – Opening the bowling and so forth after we'd opened the bowling with with Starkey and, and, and Cummins in that particular in that World Cup earlier and we we knocked guys over and got wickets early so it's one of those mm. things that you know different different opinions at different times but we could have probably gone through that World Cup unscathed if that hadn't been the case. To be a fast bowler, bowling as the best batsman uh, in the world day in day out on some very flat wickets, you need to be very mentally tough. So from a mental skills perspective, were you always built a certain way or did you develop certain mental skills that you use to get the best out of yourself every single time? Yeah, I would think that most people would say earlier in my career I was pretty skillful and lots of stuff. I, I had some pretty – I was a bit soft on occasions, I believe, um, throughout my early career and so forth. It wasn't until that time that, you know, around that um, – 89 period where I really got my act together. I, you know, it took me sort of four years to, to get through, get myself on a balanced playing field in my head and, and back my ability. And that ability was then backed by my fitness and, and everything else. And from 
from that 80, 89, 90 summer in Australia through to the end of my career. I had my, my act was in the gear all the time. So um, probably one of the, my best bowling performances in the West Indies in 1991. Um, mm-hmm. against the West Indies, I got 25 wickets in five tests and terrorised them as much as they terrorised us and, and so forth. And that was a real um, catalyst of my bowling in that band because we – we played on extremely, extremely flat wickets, and uh, we we still wickets that were flat but still had bounce. If that sounds half mm. correct, and yep. uh, or carry, but uh, no swing or no theme, not a grass, of, <laughs> a blade of grass to be seen. But, so, but a lot of that was where I was probably most aggressive and, and with my bowling, and it just grew from there. And you know, my career was you know well and truly on, on track after that. So, would you say your best? mindset what that looked like you being aggressive like that was that was what you bought you knew that that really worked work for you what is that as you're running to bowl or running the bowl and and being in batsman's faces so mm. it would Merv and I probably wouldn't have any money left these days from things that we didn't said <laughs> but um, mm. it, um, it was just the way in which we approached the game and, and uh, me in particular from that point of view I was always happy to have a chat to the bloke at the other end about how well he was going and, and whatever so um, um, I enjoyed it sometimes it didn't come off that well and guys got on top of you and they got 100 so um, yeah. you just got to do the best you can on the day haven't you but not so ninety one. The West Indies. That was the time where you realised that was your best mindset for you to be your best. And then he's like, okay, I've got to bring that. I'm going to bring that every time I bowl because I know that works. Yeah, I think that was pretty much it then. Um, mm. I got hit in the head by Curtly, no Courtney Walsh. We played Jamaica in Jamaica as a warm up game um, for the Test matches and it's probably before the one dayers and so forth. And then uh, I. Been worked hard on my batting that year in short cricket. Got a few runs. Got my highest score of eighty-seven or eighty-six or whatever it was. And and I pulled Courtney in front of square for four. And the next one I was a, it was about a yard faster. I think it might have just yeah. been well by a touch. Little so, kid. Um, <laughs> and uh, went through my visor and split me open, gave me eleven stitches above my eye and and and, and, and whatever. But um, you know that really made me even more determined to, to nail these guys in their own country and, and whatever else. And, you know, I've got a broken finger and a broken thumb and a broken cheekbone on my, out of my bowling so against their guys. So I got my mm. own back and um, was bowler of the series. So it was, it was a good thing for me. Okay, so that was the catalyst. So you going, I'm going to give it back to them. And then once you did that, you realise, okay, that's me at my best, so I'm just going to do that every time. Yeah, pretty much, okay. yeah. Yeah. Yeah, awesome. And that's one thing that some people, it, it can take people time to be able to find exactly what the best version of you looks like. But then once you do that, then you've just got to do everything you can to bring that every time because you're just trying to give your be, present your best m- m- like mindset, but also obviously technically in that is bringing the best version of yourself. And that's what make people, that's what makes people great. Yeah. And, you know, I could only bring that best version um, if I was fit. And that's where the other side of it comes mm. in, being yeah. fit, flexible. And everything else, you can't be running in like a lunatic for 22 hours a day, bouncing the shit out of people if you're not fit. So you've got to make yeah. sure you've got the part of your game covered off before you step over the rope. The media was around a lot when you played, and you've also now experienced it as a coach of the Aussie team. <laughs> um, so 
um, and also the media, yeah, digging into other parts of your life at times as well. So from what you know now, would you have approached the media differently um, while you're playing, but then also after you finished playing? Um, no, not really. Actually, the media, when I was playing, I was actually good friends with a lot of the journos and so forth and had mm. drinks with them and whatever else. We, we did that in those days. Uh, we went yeah. out and had a few drinks with the chooks on occasion, so um, as baby would call them. But um, <laughs> you know, it's... it's I don't think I'd approach them any more differently. In fact, it, it helped. You know, you had to take the good with the bad. If you bowl a pile of shit, you got bagged with the press. So, um, you know, but if you if you did well and you know off the field, as you know, you've got a, you've got a great image here and in, in, in India, and you treat people remarkably well and uh, with your the whole way in which you run your life, whatever. I try to do that a little. Yeah, a fair bit as well um, with my with the journos, and that happened. That helped me once I got into you know some sponsorship deals and things like that because I got mm. better coverage, and they would do articles on me about my different sponsors and things like that, where other guys just didn't want to give the press the time of day. So mm. um, you got to take the good with the bad when you're not playing well. That's part and parcel, and some journos nail you harder than others, as you know, but. Um, <laughs> It's one of those things you've got to have a thick skin some days and, and maybe some days you don't want to read the press. But it's, um, you know, and, and after after cricket, you know, I had some pitfalls as well with my businesses and so forth. But you yeah. can't lie down. You've got to get up and go again. And, and uh, you know, I think I've done that pretty well and I've been a good example to my children, particularly from that side of things. Yeah, no no doubt. Did, did you read the media? Do you read the media or um – yeah, at all because yeah. You know, so my technique was I just didn't. I didn't. I'd never read it because I didn't really want to know either way. I just stuck. Yeah, you know, believed in what I believed in and <laughs> tried to shut it out. Every everyone's different, and uh, no, I read the press. You know, some days mm-hmm. a particular journalist. I mean, I remember Richie Benno giving me a serve in the Adelaide Advisor one day, Advertiser, or whatever it was called, mm-hmm. uh, when we were playing India, and Sunil Gavaskar was giving me a touch up, and I was trying to give Sunil. A bit of a bit of lip, which was just an absolute waste of time from a young bloke's perspective. <laughs> I was just an idiot, but um, you know, uh, it fell on deaf ears, and you know, uh, your next ball would disappear through extra cover for four. So um, <laughs> that irked me that particular article. But you know, Richie was an Australian captain, very well endowed in cricket and respected and whatever else. And if he thought you had a bad day, well, you just cop it on the nose and move on. So. Yeah. It's uh, better coming from a Richie Bano than some other jerk in the Courier Mail somewhere that you don't like. Yeah, exactly. At least it's going to be more constructive. <laughs> yeah, correct. <laughs> um, all right, this is going to move um, into other aspects of a life away from cricket um, that I know you know very well. Um, I believe one of the most important life skills that most of us don't get well-educated um, on throughout our life is managing and investing our money wisely. Um, so, looking back from where you are now, aside from like, apart from building the businesses that you have, um, would you have done things differently from an investment and wealth generation point of view? Yeah, I probably would have in in some aspects. I think um, I always when I got when I finished cricket, and even when I was in cricket, I wanted to have you know a big house and nice cars and all that. And sometimes that's you know, you know I had a house you know pre. GFC that was valued at about ten million. I should have had ten houses worth a million. Uh, it would have been more sensible, or five houses worth two million, or whatever it may be. So, you know, yeah. I've changed my uh, 
you know, attitude towards that sort of thinking. Um, um, that sort of, you know, I, I should have had more smaller assets rather than chasing the bigger asset. That would have been a lot more clever from my perspective. Not so much mm. as a cricketer now because the amount of money they earn, they can they can have those mm. dollar assets and so forth. I mean, when I finished, I was on a $180,000 contract and, you know, had a couple of million dollars worth of houses. So, you know, it was mm. one of those things that, I, I, I should have handled better from that point of view. And um, I look back on it and think, well, you know, I did achieve that, but it would have been, there would have been some things along those lines that, that, I, that I would have changed. Yeah, but what you say there is like now, and obviously I've been incredibly fortunate a couple along the time when we're able to make you know, incredible money by playing. But if I had my time again, it would have been not getting big loans. So I end up like, I'm one of the reasons probably why the share, the share price of NAB or Westpac was going up because <laughs> I had these big loans, which I could, I could um, service them because of my income, but yeah. the advice that I was getting around is, Oh yeah, look, you can get this. You can get a, you can get access to a loan for this. I'm um, instead yeah. of going, you know what? Well, you know what? That money that you're paying the bank because you got a loan, you can actually buy a smaller asset now and not, and actually use that money for yourself to grow your wealth, not just paying yeah. it, you know, paying it into the paying it into the bank and helping their um, their coffers. Particularly these days, I mean, like you you know, borrow money for construction funding at four and a half percent off CBA, and then when you're finished mm. and you've got to build a lease out, they give you another loan to, to just to hold that asset at two point four five. Like it's just yeah. ridiculous that what what money is about at the moment, even though yeah. it's harder to get because of you know the COVID and whatever else. It's, um, mm. There's some great opportunities out there from that point of view, and certainly putting um, cash flow is very important. I, you know, I like, used to like having shareholding in a lot, a lot of different things rather than having cash flow. So I'd much rather get paid more to do a particular role and take a small mm. shareholding um, and and have cash flow constantly um, at yep. my age. Now anyway, Bill, you are just about the only cricket that I know who has built very successful successful businesses from the ground up in your life after your playing days, which I, I do, I find absolutely fascinating. And it's something that I, I continue to learn from. So do you have any specific lessons that you learned from being involved in businesses, especially when things didn't turn out exactly how you'd planned? Yeah, I think to have some good people around you to give you uh, some advice. And I, I don't think I had enough good people around with me around me last time. And I still okay. wanted that be. I wanted to have the biggest house on the block and that was a bad attitude from my point of view and something that I shouldn't have chased. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, it's just uh, I think now that I'm in, a, in, in that, you know, I've obviously been with the Australian team for four or five years, which was a great a period of my life, um, and then that reached reached an end and, and uh, I've got back into doing some things with some very good people from uh, from a finance industry point of view. Um, people have been in development for a long period of time and you're getting good sound advice on all fronts before you you try and tackle anything. So it's um, it's been a lot more enjoyable in the last two, say two to three years in, in moving in that direction yet again. Yeah, so what what would like a specific criteria be be to be able to try and sift through whether they're actually a good person to be in business with or not? Do you have a specific criteria that you use? Um, not particularly. I mean, uh, everyone's. I mean, because the GSC, a lot of people in the property property industry that is you're still now talking to have have all all been some have been up a dry gully and a very dry gully, mm, and some have been yeah. successful and, and and awfully successful. So. Um, 
I think it's just really trying to sift through those their their inputs in in you know if you're looking at so I've talked to a mate of mine uh, John and he's we looked at some I was looking at some beachfront stuff and he said oh you know you can't make the houses work there you can only go three stories and he reeled it all off in two or three minutes and I thought well that's all that's all said and done from his point of view but we're all looking at a different product and whatever else so you still go there and go and talk to other people that deal in that particular product point. Anybody can buy a block of land what and, and, and chop it up and build houses and build apartments or whatever else. But if you don't have an exit strategy for anything, you know, if you don't have that sales plan, you don't have good marketers, um, all that sort of thing. You don't have good agents who are in the medical industry. If you're doing a, a medical centre to be able to get the, the doctors and the, all those sort of people in and le- lease those spaces out or sell the strata titles to the professional mm-hmm. professionals, well, um, you haven't got an exit. So, and the way in which the world's always worked is you've got to have an exit strategy. Back when I was developing last time in the late 90s and early 2000s, the markets were that good. Exit strategy was really simple, but now it's not like that. And we've got to, you've got to just put in the homework and make sure that you've got all that covered off. It just takes more time. Yeah. And, and what you said there, what you've learned from your previous experience was the extra strategy to make sure you're very clear on that so you can then plan for it. Is that is that right? Yeah, that's it. Yeah. Most definitely. Whether it's yeah. a little 13 lot subdivision of Redbone Plains or it's, you know, 100 lots, 100 lots in Brisbane somewhere or down the Gold Coast, yeah. it's the same thing is that, you know, you're going to produce a block of dirt and you've got to make sure that with you can get rid of it and whether you sell it just as land, whether you've got houses on it to sell to owner occupiers or first home buyers or you're going to investors or you're going to NDIS for, you know, um, underprivileged people, all those type of things. There's a, a myriad of different ways you can go with with, with products these days. Medical is one of the, the very – I'm very interested in that side of, you know, the commercial reality of everything. It's it's a great industry to be involved in and, and – um, Whilst doctors are a different beast to deal with, it's um you know it's always a, a commercial building that's going to hold a, a very good yield uh, for a sale mm. ability for the day because everyone makes money out of people being crook. Yep, that's it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Especially this time, of, um, this day and age, right now, what we're going through with COVID. Um, what you said there is about learning from from your experiences in life. Um, and look, we all no doubt we all go through so many ups and downs in our lives and you've certainly had you know, your fair share as well. So do you have a mantra or saying that you always remind yourself of that makes you bounce back quicker from the challenges and setbacks that life always throws at you? Um, not really. It's just a matter of like, I mean, there's always setbacks in everything you try and plan and, you know, it's having a plan B. What's your plan B? And, and it's, it's that's as simple as, as it can get. You can always solve a problem if you, in the first place, you can always solve a problem as long as in the first place you haven't talked a load of shit to someone. So as long as you tell the truth and you actually put everything on a piece of paper that is in black and white and there's no smokes and mirrors, you can solve the problem. If you get into joint ventures or business with anyone and you haven't been down that track, um, you're going to get found out very quickly and you get a very poor name very quickly and um, funders, joint venture partners, builders, all that sort of stuff, they don't like dealing with you. So, you say, so what you're saying there is honesty but also having a making sure you have a plan B because there's always, well, knowing that there is a plan B. 
that if it doesn't work out exactly to plan, you can actually there's another route that you can take. Yeah, I think you I think you need to have plan B and C um, in, in what we're trying to achieve, and, and whether it's in venture capital or whether it's in property. So, um, you know, you've got to have an A, B, and C plan because the market changes. You've got to just see how everything's changed for everyone's life over the last six months. Um, mm. You know, you know, I'm just glad that I don't own a restaurant, a coffee shop, and a pub. So, you know, those sort I feel so sorry for them, and, and um, you know they need all the help they can get. And obviously Victoria and so forth at the moment, it's, it's terrible going through the second lot. They just hope Palaszczuk keeps the border shut. <laughs> yeah. So, and from from what you're saying, like um, Plan B, C, D, you use that not just in business, but also in your your life in general as well. That's how you know you navigate different challenges that you know that do always you know, come up in other other parts of your life as well. Yeah, I think so, and um, it's it's things that you've got to teach your children, don't you? I mean, you're a father yourself now, and you know, um, you know, you you've got to teach your children on how to navigate through problems, whether it's at school or um, problems in the playground, on the cricket field, on the basketball court, how they think about how they approach their training, um, whether it's athletics, swimming, cricket, basketball. You know, my kids play various across the board, so. Um, and I'm lucky that I've got the experience in, in from my coaching point of view, not just from a father, but from a coaching point of view, and and being involved with so many different facets of coaching from young players through the to being involved with the, some of the best players in the world for a long period of time. It gives you a, a great experience to be able to hand on to your own children in particular, and and obviously my wife Emma Marie has been a, a tremendous part of all that, and. Um, you know, with her experiences in life and business and everything else as well. Yep, you're a you're a lucky man with your with your whole family. You got your beautiful wife and your and your and your great kids as well. But you try you you do you do reap what you sow in that regard. If you're that type of person, that's what you actually that's what you get back. So there's, yeah, there's no secrets there at all. Yeah, very lucky. Very. Billy, you've met and been around some of the most successful people in the world. In the world, um, who has inspired you the most, and and why? I think everyone meets different people that influences them in different ways, just like a Trevor Hendy did with me, like a John McGuire did, a Ray Linwell, or whatever. And I think um, I don't have a, I don't, I've never had a, a particular mentor that I've ever talked to. Um, it's always been drawing on various people because I've, even as a cricketer, when I was playing cricket, I was building spec homes and, you know, all those type of things away from cricket. So, I wasn't just cricket orientated, even though I love the game of cricket. I was always thinking about what am I going to do if I, you know, I leave my knee goes, I bust my shoulder or whatever else. I've got to have something else to fall back on. So, you know, and architecture and construction was my, my love. My father was a builder. So it sort of had me, headed me down that path. So, um, you know, that was, it was really a passion and a love of mine why I went in that direction. But I, I didn't really, as I said, go back again, I didn't really have a mentor from that point of view who steered me in that direction. I just happened to go down that path because because that's what I loved. And, and you know, I, I caught pressure within the Australian cricket team at the time because sometimes they thought I wasn't focused enough on what I, what I was doing. But my career speaks for itself. I was, I was pretty focused. Mm. And I mm. talked about all the stuff that I did. To, to stay focused and but sometimes you need a relief you need, you need a release I should say to think about other things I think a lot of young players these days have got too much cricket and too much time on their hands 
and end up in strife in other areas. And to have something else to focus your brain on away from cricket was a godsend to me. Yeah, that is that is one of the most important things right now with this generation of cricketers is having something else in your life apart from just your cricket. Look, the one thing that mum, um, yeah, my mum and dad always instilled in me as a young kid was that I always needed an education to fall back on. But I also look back at through my career career that I wish that I like I had like other things like guitar or, um, yes, yeah. yeah golf or music and that sort of thing outside of, but actually developing some skills that I could use then for after my life after cricket as well. And if that's fired my time again, I would have started doing my business stuff, learning a lot more things around business and startups, finding mentors to be able to help educate me. So then, and started things while I was playing, like even while I was playing, you know, my early mid thirties, sorry, my early thirties, because Mm. you need something to fall back on. If you eat sleeping, breathing cricket, 24 7 it's not healthy especially when if something happens as you said if something happens you get injured or you end up just you know it's not your time and you end up not performing how you want you get dropped what do you got yeah that's that's 100 percent right and you know even with um the young players that you know you look at um patrick cummins has got his engineering degree now i mean that's just been a, a good thing for him probably never even use it because he's going to earn so much money playing cricket but mm. he's always He's got something else there that he, he can lean back on if he if he needs to and, and so forth. And I think it's important, particularly for those players who are playing sure cricket and are not going to play for cricket for Australia. It's pretty easy to work out if you're not going to get there at some stage in your career and you need something to fall back on. Like I was going to do architecture when I finished school and then cricket just exploded into my life when I was 16 years of age into under-19 Australian teams and playing, you know, Shield cricket at 17 and then the Australian team at 19. So, mm. my and that's obviously where my building passion come from because I, I just loved architecture and so forth. So, I was probably never really smart enough to get that go, go, go down that straight, go down that course because I couldn't study for long enough. I was too busy playing football or cricket or whatever else. But mm. that was my passion. That was my, my, uh, my focus was to try and get to there, even though I probably wasn't smart enough. No, but that's a as a great what you said there is a great lesson that everyone needs to actually tap into. Even as a as a young teenager, if they've got the if they've got the goal and dream of playing cricket professionally, whether it's for their country, whatever it is, is know they need something to fall back on. And even when they there's there's downtime as professional athletes, as professional cricketers, there's a truckload of downtime. There is, and you can use it. You can use it wisely. You can use it by learning studying, building something, or like as happens at times as well, playing computer games, you've got the choice. <laughs> Depends if you want to come, become a gamer. <laughs> but that's there's a lot of time wasted. Professional TikToker like David Warren. Or <laughs> that, yeah, well, yeah, depends. <laughs> that hasn't been a great business move in the end. TikTok's been banned in India. <laughs> oh, no. Anyway. disgraceful, but anyway. Yeah, yeah. Billy, I love reading and um, learning as much as I as I can. Um, do you have a couple of books that really stand out to you that you've read that has has had the most impact, or a documentary or documentaries that you've actually watched that have really had an impact? Um, probably no to both of those. I'm not a big reader. Um, yep. I've, I've I've read a, a number of novels when we toured India and Pakistan earlier in my career because there was absolutely nothing else to do. Um, yep. So I'm not a reader. I've got every I've got every cricketer's biography sitting on my 
shelves at home and so forth, and I've never opened one page of them. So um, yeah. I'm, just, I'm just not a reader, full stop. Documentaries, yeah. I've watched a number of documentaries through COVID, I suppose, you know, the Michael Jordans mm. and the Palais mm. and all those other things. They're interesting to watch, and I, it's great to see how those – a number of those athletes, their their lives have involved from, you know, not having a buck to being the best player in the world and, and being worth squillions. But, um, yeah, I've only really started to watch those sort of documentaries in the last few years, to be honest. Yeah, well, now that that's the thing, we've had a little bit more time. But also you've been busy doing – you've been busy building <laughs> building businesses outside of all, all coaching. So, um, yeah. Yeah, I, I enjoy reading about, you know, you know I'm, watching property and all that sort of stuff and, and mm. then finance in the last couple of years with our venture, venture capital stuff and some, um, you know, some business innovation type stuff and then startups like you are mm. uh, involved with. So that's really where, where my head is in and what space at the moment. Yeah. And so in regards to that space, what are the things that you are, that you do read to be able to upskill in the finance, in the venture capital space or the startup space? It's really, it's really. Um, we do in our in our startup space. We've got uh, VCs, VC, who you know we we help people invest into businesses to get their PR in Australia and so forth through um, our venture capital companies. And and um, really, it's just reading their business plans as to the things that we okay. have to do. And they yeah. have long, tedious things with cash flows and all that sort of stuff. And it, it really mm. takes me. A serious amount of time to get through one business plan because I just find reading so arduous. But you've got to understand all that sort of stuff before you you talk to people about you know where you can take that particular venture or whatever else. So fortunately, my business partner in that is a is a very 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 cluey guy and loves reading and is a speed reader. So half the time I only get halfway through and I get him to give me all the answers. So yep. Perfect. Well, that's a business part. There. That's a perfect business part they're looking for. You can complement your skills. Yeah, that's it. That's <laughs> it. I'm, good at, I'm good at finding deals and he's good at doing all the back-end stuff, which is great. Billy, I can't thank you enough for taking the time to be on this episode of Lessons Learned with the Greats. You've lived an extraordinary life so far and the lessons that you've learned throughout your life and your amazing insights have been phenomenal to hear. I'm so incredibly grateful for you to share all of these experiences with me and everyone who listens to this is that much richer for letting me dig deeper into the minds of one of the greatest fast bowls Ipswich has ever produced, as well as being one of the greatest fast bowls Australia's ever produced. <laughs> Thanks, what It's a pleasure, mate. Um, just great to be a, a great mate of yours, and um, it's, it was great to um, coach you with the Australian cricket team. You've got a great family yourself, and you're a, a tremendous asset to cricket, uh, the ACA in particular now. And Thanks very much for having me on. You're a good man, Billy. Thanks, mate. For more episodes of Lessons Learned with the Greats, head to t20stars.com forward slash podcast. Don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.